We're going to be teaching out of Daniel uh, this evening, but our reading is out of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face forward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early uh, on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Tonight, we are going to be in Daniel 5 once again because there is just too much good stuff in these chapters of Daniel to just go through it once. But tonight, we're going to be examining some of the details in chapter 5 and uh, look at them from maybe a slightly different aspect. There's some important topics still left in Daniel 5 to mine, and so we're going to do that. Um, in our, how many posts are we on? Post postmodern world? Are we on two posts or three posts? I don't remember now. In our post postmodern day, we have, I think, so rationalized and personalized our theology and our biblical understanding that sometimes the supernatural view of certain passages starts to become rather foreign to us. We don't necessarily see it the same way that it would have been received originally. And it's a challenge. And it's, it's difficult, especially when going through the Old Testament when there is so much that was an understood context in the past that we don't necessarily have readily available. And so the challenge when we're studying and meditating on God's word is to make it a practice to understand the passages, uh, in, accordance, in accordance with the mindset of the author and also the original recipients of the passage of the, of the scriptures. And it's difficult for us, again, because we're so far removed to really know and understand some of the context. So it is a challenge, and that's it's something that we have to take uh, some extra care to be able to go through and to make sure that we aren't simply skimming over and only taking just a surface understanding of what's going on in Scripture. So that's going to be our challenge tonight. Uh, side note, 
Okay, this is not me saying that John did a bad job last time in chapter 5. That's not what this is. In fact, John did a great job going through chapter 5, and what that enables us to do is to be able to go into the passage from a different angle and perhaps go deeper on a couple of different levels. And so it's really only because we've got a good understanding of chapter 5 that we can do this. I just want to say that on the, on the outset. I was, I was blessed and convicted by, by that message. Um, so just, just because we went through it once last time, uh, we are going to dig into this a bit more. 40 to 45 minutes to go through a passage is a lot of times not a lot of time. It's, it's difficult sometimes to do that and to really get all of the different aspects that we can out of a passage. Um, it's not much time, and it's made even shorter by long introductions like this. So let's go ahead and get into Daniel chapter 5. So Daniel chapter 5. You all there? All right. Uh, Daniel chapter 5. This, uh, this passage is pretty well known. It should be extra well known because we've already gone through it once. Uh, but this, uh, like John was saying last time, this has led to a saying right? The writing's on the wall. So what does that mean when you say the writing's on the wall? What does it mean? What? It's been decided. What else? It's really obvious. Yeah, it could mean that. It can also just mean it's kind of like judgment's already there. Like the writing's on the wall. Like it's, it's going to happen. It's, it's a, there's not really a question that that's going to take place. Sometimes when we look at these passages, we'll, we'll get that meaning out of it, and we'll just start running, right? Put that in our pocket and get going. And I think there's, there's a little bit more for us to look at here in this passage than just to kind of get that idea. I, I want to spend a little extra time in some of the background to this passage here. If you were to pick up commentaries or um, books critical of Scripture from the 1800s, um, concerning this passage. It would be pretty thick. A lot of discussion and things like that. The closer you get to modern day, that those higher critical books get smaller and smaller. And the reason is, it was understood that this passage uh, was missing information, was incorrect, had wrong information in it. Daniel was a bad historian. And what it actually turns out is that the more information that has been found, the more we have found that this passage is faithful to what history actually is. It actually supports and upholds Daniel as being a historically accurate book, which is pretty cool if you think about it. But it also highlights the fact that it is difficult for us to get some of this background information. So, a lot of stuff we're going to talk about right now isn't necessarily captured here in chapter 5. Uh, and, and John talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Belteshazzar is not necessarily listed in the list of kings. And this is actually really important, um, but it's also, I think, majorly important to understand why that might be. So the, the, the king... Uh, who would have been the, the actual king in accordance with the records, is uh, Nabonidus. Nabonidus uh, was a king who became king through a coup. He actually overthrew Nebuchadnezzar's grandson and became king. He was not necessarily in that direct line through Nebuchadnezzar. 
uh, which can be confusing because later it talks to about Belteshazzar as being the son of Nebuchadnezzar. That was obviously still true, but also positionally he was in the line of kings. So, But all that to say, Nabonidus uh, is a really interesting character. And so, you know, and, and these interesting things are written in very thick books and libraries that most people will never read. But we'll just touch on it a little bit tonight. Nabonidus was gone. He was a, an absent king for about 10 years. And he spent that 10 years. It's sometimes enough for us just to say he wasn't there, so Belteshazzar was there in his place. But I think it's actually really important to understand why he wasn't there. I think that actually makes it even more poignant as to what God is doing in Daniel chapter 5. Nabonidus was sort of like a spiritually focused Indiana Jones. And that sounds really weird to say. But Nabonidus spent about 10 years, roughly, traveling around the empire, going and uncovering historical artifacts. We think of them being as, you know, ancients. He was digging up stuff that was 1,500 years old when he dug it up. But he was just fascinated by the history, the deep history that Babylon really had. And so he traveled around doing this, but he actually moved his sort of base of operation from Babylon to, uh, to a different city. And well, uh, it's, it's called Tema. It doesn't really matter. It, um, it's, it is interesting that it's probably in the area of where the Midianites were. So if you read through Judges and you see Gideon fighting the Midianites, that's roughly that region, if that matters to you. But what is interesting is Nabonidus started to worship a different god. That god was named Sheen. Um, and this city of Tema was a center for moon god worship. And so it is, it is interesting that he shifts and lives there because it has some different implications. And what's interesting about him moving there was he was deepening his uh, allegiance to this god, Sheen. And at the same time, sort of shirking his responsibilities to the deity Marduk. Marduk was the chief god of Babylon. What's interesting for us, and it's something that we have to kind of keep in mind, is that politics and religion were so intermingled that it was difficult to really separate out when you had a a sort of political meeting versus a purely religious meeting. They were so intertwined. And so you have this very weird situation where a king leaves the main city of the empire and goes somewhere else because he's enamored with another god, probably partly because his mother was one of the priestess for, that, uh, for this other god. But he, So he's so enamored over here. But there's some responsibilities that the king has. He has responsibilities, not just kingly responsibilities that we would think of politically, you know, leading an army or making, I don't know what kings did, but financial decisions, things like that. Um, he was supposed to maintain favor with Marduk 
by moving away, he's not able to perform all of the different things that he's supposed to. So we've got a dilemma, don't we? Well, not us, but Nabonidus does. Babylon does. And so this is why Belteshazzar most likely was co-regent so that he could take care of those things. So while Nabonidus is over here having these spiritual journeys, finding artifacts, and actually building museums for these things, it was pretty neat. But while he's doing all of those things, you have Belteshazzar taking care of a lot of the other things. Why is this important? This is important because what you're starting to see is a divided kingdom according to religious lines. You have the king, who's in the records as being king, who isn't, doesn't even care about the main god of Babylon anymore. In fact, there's some evidence to show that he's trying to replace Marduk with Sheen, which to us, again, why do we care? We care because this is intimately connected with this idea of empire, and it's, it's connected with a lot of the ideas that we're going to see later on in chapter 5 here in just a second. So the reason why this is also important is because when he does this, the priests that are there, these, remember all these Chaldeans, the magicians, these other ones that are, that are there in Babylon? Well, that's not very popular to all of a sudden you know, start switching gods like that. Difficult political things going on. But this leaves Belshazzar there in Babylon to be that kingly presence to maintain this proper relationship. Nabonidus is off doing something else. Now, he didn't completely shirk all of his responsibility. There's evidence to show that he did lead the army from times. In fact, he may have even been leading the army against the Persians on the night that we're looking at here in chapter 5. There's also some evidence that he was defeated and he ran away. Whatever. But he still has not completely forgotten all of his other things that he is supposed to do. But this sort of thing that's going on in the background leads us to what we're seeing here in chapter 5. One of the principles that we need to remember is that the chief god of an area, of a region, that god was seen not just as the patron of that city, but if there was a clash between that city or that empire and another one. What they had in view was even though it was physical armies going out to go and to fight, these battles were supernatural at the same time. This was actually a battle between the gods. Which god is superior? Who is the greater god? Who is going to win? And this sounds like a, like a silly thing to us. In our modern times, we don't really think about that that often. That's not what's reported. You know, between conflicts between different groups. This God is fighting this God, and so what are the priests doing? We don't talk about that kind of stuff. This is what I'm, I was referring to before in the introduction, just in saying that we've so rationalized some of our thoughts around this that we don't think about what that real context is like we see it in Daniel. But we actually see that, that Yahweh is concerned with these things. Let's look at Daniel 5 real quick here. Verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Uh, pause there for a second. What else is going on here? 
They're having a big party. Is it just a party? I think it's more than that. But the Persians are coming up to the city. It's not mentioned here. And I think part of the reason is, is God doesn't really care. God is not really all that concerned that the Persians are at the gates. It's not recorded here. That's not important for this story. Anyway, verse 2. Belshazzar, when he test, or tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. So we're having this party. Understand, this is actually not just a party. It's more than that. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. There's, there's a really good reason why he asks for those things to be brought in. It says that they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Pause there for a second. Where have we seen at least part of this list before? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, where have we seen those? I hear whispers, whispers. Yeah, the dream Nebuchadnezzar had. It's interesting, right? Probably not a huge point, because we also have listed here stone and, and wood, but it's kind of interesting. But they drank to those gods. Verse 5, immediately when they had drunk from those special vessels... It says, immediately the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster on the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. It is interesting, it says here, he changed color. I wonder what color he was before and what he changed to. I wish they would have just given those details. It would be more entertaining. But he's that frightened of this thing. <clears throat> Looking at this, though, there is more going on than just... God wants to give a message. Okay, let's go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 5. We read through this before. Do you remember this story? We read the first part of it. This is during the time of Samuel. The Philistines are coming against Israel, and Israel thinks, well, why don't we take our magic box and go fight the Philistines? They didn't have any respect for the ark. They just thought it was a special talisman. They brought it out. The Philistines captured it. And then, pretty soon, they were sorry that they had. Because it says here that they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple to Dagon. Dagon is the chief god of the Philistines, of the five cities of the Philistines. Um, he has like a fish on his head or something. Weird looking thing. But that's their god. The reason why the Ark of the Covenant was taken and then brought in there was to make a point. The point was, Yahweh, because it's so weird from the Philistines' perspective. These weird Israelites don't have like a statue. They don't have like a, like a thing, like a person shape. They just got this weird box with these weird angel things on top. That's so weird. Well, okay, we'll take this box then. That was the only representation that they can think of of Yahweh, and they put it in the temple of Dagon. The reason is, not just to keep people from stealing it, but the reason was to show, hey, look, Yahweh's not that great a God. We got his box. 
we put it in, this, in our temple. He's now subservient to Dagon. And you could think, is that really the case? Was it really that Dagon was greater and that's why they got the ark? We go, no, that's silly. Well, is it? From their perspective, that wasn't silly. That was, that was a real proof of Dagon's superiority. It was something for them to be able to say, look, Yahweh's probably dead or something, and if he's not dead, he's definitely not as great as Dagon, because look, we got your special box. And they put that box in the temple. Well, what happened right after that? Next morning, where's Dagon? Do you remember? Face down in front of the ark. Dagon, for some reason, maybe some weird prank by the priests, who knows? Not a lot of discussion about what happened. They just kind of put him back up. He's like, that was weird. Maybe it was just an earthquake. Maybe, I don't know, who knows. Next day, same thing but worse. Right? His arms or hands are broken off. His head's broken off. Not a great idol at this point. And then it says that not only does, <clears throat> is Dagon showing himself to be subservient to Yahweh, but it says that they got tumors. Tumors started showing up. That's a really kind way of saying this. But another translation would be is they had hemorrhoids, which sounds like that's silly, but horrible flaming hemorrhoids that everyone has, I think partly this was a mockery of them. But now they can't sit down. Now they, they can't, they don't have normal life anymore because they've got these flaming hemorrhoids. So they devise a plan. They put it on a, a cart and they basically put a test out to Yahweh, take this back. And they put like, it says they put gold tumors in there. So they like fat, fashioned the hemorrhoids out of gold as an offering. Very weird. Um, but they put it on there and this Cow just took it right back to Israel. So look at that. So after that event, do you think that they thought Yahweh was subservient to Dagon? Do you think? What do you think? Yes or no? No. So here's the funny thing. God allowed the ark to be brought in to prove to all of them, see, you think you beat me. No. You just allowed me to show how powerful I was. So while we might say that's a silly thing to say that a God is greater than another God just because of a battle, what God is saying is like, no, you don't understand. I'm greater than your God, not just because of a battle. I'm greater than your God because of who I am. They then had a new respect for Yahweh. What's interesting is they probably at that point had more respect for the Ark of the Covenant than the Israelites did. Because the Israelites just thought it was some lucky thing they could take into battle without consulting the Lord. And here are these Philistines that say, like, no, this thing is powerful and you need to take it back because we don't want this around anymore. And as soon as it was gone, all the plagues that they had were gone. Pretty weird, right? God does this in so many different places. We only have a couple of other examples. Um, I walked away from my note. There, <laughs> Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, just from where that is, what do you think this is? 
Exodus chapter 14. This is the crossing of the Red Sea. I want to read this really quick. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and to encamp in front of Pi-Hithoreth, between Migdal and the sea. But here's the specific part. Um, he wanted them to camp in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. So I just want to set this up real quick. They are already at the Red Sea, and God says, no, we need, we, this isn't right. We need, we need to change this. We need you to pack everything up, and I need you to go up the coast in front of this other town, this other place, in front of this other, what ends up being there is, there is a temple there. And it's called Baal Zephon. Guess who is worshipped at Baal Zephon? I'll give you a guess. Baal, yes, Baal, Baal, Baal. Um, what's interesting is, uh, modern scholarship understands that at this point in time, in Egypt, it was Baal that was actually the chief god. Not Ra, not uh, Horus or any others. At that point in time, it was Baal. Which also makes sense as to why when they went into the desert, when they had to think up of a, a different god, it was Baal, not an Egyptian god that we would normally think of. But anyway. Do you know why God had them go there? <clears throat> Does anyone know who Baal is the god of? Or I should say what Baal is the god of. Does anyone know? No? Baal is the god of storms and the sea. So God says, I'm going to do something super cool. So I need you to all camp yourselves in front of the temple of the god of storms and sea. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to show that he's worthless in regards to power against Yahweh. God actually makes his own people go out of their way to go somewhere else to show all the people there at Balsaphon that God is the one who controls the sea because what does he do right after that? He splits the sea and they walk across on dry land, basically saying to them, who, where's your God? I thought that, that Balsaphon was the one who was, or that Baal was over all this area here. I thought that he was the great God. Oh, and what happened? Did Baal come and help the Egyptians? As they crossed through the sea on dry land, what happened to the army of Egypt? They drowned in the sea, but I thought their God, Baal, was right there at this temple to help them? No. Didn't happen. Who's more powerful? Baal or Yahweh? Yeah, not a trick question. Thank you. I just got nervous for a second. Yahweh is more powerful, and God proved it. All right? He does this again later with the children of Israel. We're not going to turn there, but in Joshua chapter 3, they go to the Jordan, and they're standing there, and the Jordan River is at flood stage. Guess who's the chief god there? Baal, still Baal. What happens? Did, 
the, now, the Jordan is at flood stage. It is at the highest point that it's going to be. Did that help them? Did that save them? Did that save Jericho? No. In fact, very similar story. That river split, and they walked across on dry land there too. Oh, my goodness. They all start freaking out. These stories are true. This Yahweh really is more powerful than Baal. Do you see a trend? Sometimes we forget that these aren't just stories to make children's church more exciting. These stories are put here for us to understand that Yahweh isn't just the only God. For any God that is represented anywhere, God shows that he is greater than that God, and that God, and that God. He is the greatest. He is, there's no one who can approach him. It doesn't matter what this. Now, the big deal with this is that after the wilderness wandering and they get to the Jordan, Yahweh is regarded as a desert god. Does, god. does a desert god have power here? Turns out he does. Turns out he may not just be a desert god. He might be more. And to anyone that Israel opposed, they found out that God was God. Yahweh was actually the great God. There was no dispute. It didn't matter who came against Israel. God was greater. Well, Daniel chapter 1, do you remember? All the way back to Daniel chapter 1. Babylon shows up in Judah. Who is greater? Marduk or Yahweh? Who's greater? Yahweh still is, but what happened? Judah fell multiple times. So according to this whole scheme of things, Yahweh is disgraced. Nebuchadnezzar takes the things out of his temple, but he still has enough respect to just put them in the treasury. They're still regarded as just treasure. Something happens on this night, though. Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, going back there. King calls for the vessels to come out. Why? Why did he do this? It wasn't just because they were running out of cups. It did say they have a thousand lords, so I could understand that part of it. But it says that this was a party. This wasn't just a party, though. There's something really significant that's taking place, okay? So this party is actually, possibly, a way for them to fight the Persians. Think about it. Who's at the gates? The Persians are out there. Maybe Nabonidus is out there fighting, maybe not, don't know any of that sort of stuff. But what they do is they say, well, we are going to worship our God. There's weirdness, though, because that whole Marduk, moon god thing, this date, and we know this from the Persian records, the, the day that this took place was the 17th of Tashritu in 539 BC. They didn't know it was 539. They probably had a different year, but that helps us. This was most likely during a very particular festival. And this festival was called Akitu, and it was the time when the king was supposed to um, sort of draw up favor 
with the gods, if that makes sense. So this whole festival is more than just we're having a big old party for all the lords. This most likely was also a type of festival that they did when they got together to try to show that their God was great, to try to, um, you know, garnish favor to make him more powerful. So this idea that somehow they're, they're having a party to distract themselves, this actually might have been their way to try to make their God more powerful. Does that make sense? We're going to get together. They're out there. We're in here. We're going to actually beef this thing up a bit. <clears throat> but something happens. And it could be because he drank too much wine. We don't know. But he says, hey, remember we have the vessels from Yahweh's temple? Go and get those. Do you know what this is? This isn't just we ran out of cups. This is we have to show that Sheen is more powerful than Yahweh. And so we're going to drink from his cups. We're going to show that our God is greater on this high festival night. Do you know what that date also is? I'm going to guess not. I had to look it up. This was also, according to the Jewish calendar, the 17th of Tishri. Tishri, or the 15th of Tishri, was the beginning of Sukkot. Do you know what Sukkot is? Anyone? The Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of the high feasts of the year for Yahweh. This was the time where they remembered when they were in the wilderness and God was taking care of them. And they would, they would celebrate this by building shelters and sort of camping out for the week. Probably lots of fun for the kids, right? So they would do this to show that God is God no matter where you go. Wherever we tabernacle, God is the great God. And where were they tabernacling at that time? Where was most of Judah or a portion of Judah? What? They were in Babylon. They weren't home. They were tabernacling somewhere else. So guess who the great God actually really is? <clears throat> King Belshazzar tried to use that night to show that their God, Sheen, was greatest. But who was greater? Yahweh. Yahweh, who is the God of gods, Jesus, who is King of kings, who is Lord of lords, cannot be mocked without recompense. This whole chapter doesn't really talk about Persia as being the big baddie. What this is, is on Yahweh's festival, they tried to mock him. And so he said, you know what? I've got the Persians outside and they're going to take care of it. It meant that when Daniel was called to look at this message given, Daniel gets to tell them what it means. And what it means is that they're, well, it says first right there, mene, mene, right? It says your days are numbered. But it says it there twice. So linguistically what it you, what it means is 
here's the number that we have, and here's the other number we calculated, and look at this. The number of days that Babylon was supposed to exist had already been calculated. This is the fulfillment of at least the first part of Daniel chapter 2 of that vision. It was already calculated. This was already in the plan. It just happens to be the night that you tried to mock Yahweh. And so guess what? We calculated out the other days. Ah, it matches up. Tonight's the night. You can't go against Yahweh and live. And Daniel tries to recount the story of Nebuchadnezzar being humbled, remembering who Yahweh is, and uplifting Yahweh's name. In fact, I'm, I'm, I would guess that when Belteshazzar, Belshazzar says, hey, go get all those vessels from Yahweh's temple, all the Chaldeans and the magicians are like, you shouldn't do that. See, because at this point, it had been about four decades since Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, died at least a couple of decades earlier, but it had been about 40 years or so since Yahweh showed himself to be God in that court. They remembered. I could just imagine them saying, this is not going to end well. This is not going to work. Big, big mistake. Let's look back at verse... 22. Sorry, verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king. So we, we started to talk about what the writing was. This is where Daniel gives his warning. Notice in verse 23, he again says to them that you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand your breath, in, in, I'm sorry, in whose hand is your breath, those are all the, um, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And the reason I want to point that out, this chapter has to do with honor of Yahweh. This does not have to do with the Persians somehow finding a way to finally take over Babylon. I know that's what everyone else would look and see. But what this has to do with is the dishonoring and the mocking of Yahweh. Verse 24, then from his presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. So we started to talk about this many, many tekel parson. This is a similar event to Nebuchadnezzar receiving the dream, except that this was done in public. This was done in front of all of his lords. It could not be hidden. This was done as an example to everyone there of who Yahweh really is. Verse 27, we already talked about many, many. Tekel, you've been weighed. The balances are found wanting. You've come up short. Verse 28 Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This should hearken us back to the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago when we looked at the divine council. This is God pronouncing judgment on a kingdom. 
Then Belshazzar gave and command, uh, gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Not that great of a deal since that was the last night of that kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The Medes and the Persians were Yahweh's instrument of judgment. In the same way Babylon had been an instrument of judgment in Yahweh's hand with Judah. The moral of all of those stories, Yahweh is greater. There is no one beside him. He's able to pronounce judgments on any of the gods, and his judgments are true. And sometimes we'll look at that to say, yeah, but their gods were fake. But I think what we see here is that, not just here, but in the other passages that we looked at, the battles of men are a reflection of the battles between the gods, between heavenly powers, and Yahweh always comes out on top. The moral of this is not to say there are no other gods. The moral of the story is to say that our God is greater than any who might oppose him. And that's really the point. Now, we could go through all of that and interesting history stuff, at least interesting to me, and we can ask the most theologically important question we could ask of any passage or any teaching, which is, so what? So what? It's pretty neat to go through these things and to notice this, but what does that have to do with us today? Right? Isn't that usually what we try to get out of a sermon? Just how, how can I live this out? I mean, partly you can say, okay, I won't, uh, I won't drink from the vessels from the temple. It's a good, that's a good lesson. Don't do that. But what's really the, the issue here? Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read through a passage that's incredibly familiar to us, I'm sure, if you've been in the church for any amount of time. But maybe we'll look at it with some different eyes. Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 10. Finally, this is uh, the Apostle Paul writing. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Pause there for a second. What was just stated? Does Paul think that there are no other heavenly authorities? What does it say here? It says that we actually wrestle against them. Our challenge as, well, as Christians in the 21st century is to so rationalize our theology that we forget what our battle is really about. Now, it's weird to take the context of crossing the Jordan, 
crossing the Red Sea, Persians at the gates. And somehow that, apply that to us. But I think this is actually the fulfillment of what is discussed in Matthew 28. When Jesus says, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth, Jesus says that's his authority. And so he says, well, Paul writes in Ephesians that we actually don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We, we wrestle against all of those. It's so important. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul doesn't think it's fake. Paul is saying these things are real. And the reason I say this, and I'm, I'm like kind of trying to emphasize this, is because when we as believers get together and when we pray about certain things, we pray about the world, or we pray about our city or the things around me, how often do we actually go back to this passage and say, you know what, it's not actually about that particular individual who's in that political position, who holds that position. It's not about a physical army going against another physical army in some part of the world. That's actually not what it's about. That's what it says here in Ephesians chapter 6. We actually don't fight against them. We fight against authorities, rulers, cosmic powers, all these things. All of these things that are discussed throughout the Old Testament that are just lined up to say all these powers are opposing. And then when we get to the New Testament, it looks like Jesus doesn't even really care what the Sanhedrin says. Have you picked up on that? Reading through the Gospels, Jesus kind of doesn't care. They'll say, don't do that. You can't talk like this. And he says, well, well, <laughs> well. I'm going to. Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin. You guys better stop. You better stop preaching about Jesus. And they go, well, I mean, we're, we're not going to. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. If you haven't read it recently, you should. It's not very long. Jesus writes, or should say he dictates seven letters to be sent to seven churches. And these churches, and they were real churches in modern-day Turkey. And Jesus has a message for each one of them, which for us is really cool to think about. That Jesus knows bodies of, of, you know, that get together and worship. He knows them intimately enough to send them a personal letter to talk about things that are really specific to those particular churches. That's pretty neat, right? I think it is. But if you go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you see these churches have different issues, different things going on. Some of them he praises, some of them he warns, he makes promises. If you follow me, if you do these things, you know, he'll... He'll, he'll give them something. But there's something that is stated in each one of these that ties back to Ephesians, which ties back to everything else we're talking about. To each one of these churches, he says, and he makes a, a promise to the one who conquers, talking to the individuals of this church, to the one who conquers. Or you might have a translation that says, to the one who overcomes. 
And he makes an amazing promise in each one of these letters. To some that they'll have a special stone with a special name. Some of them he promises if you withstand, you will be able to eat of the manna that I'll give. And these pretty cool things. But all these promises are otherworldly type of promises. But again, it's given to those who, who conquer, who overcome. That's exactly what Paul says here in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Having done all, what are we to do? We stand. We overcome. We hang on. We hold tight. We endure. We make it through. We do it together. That is what we're supposed to do, which sounds super weird. You're talking about cosmic powers in these different places. So what I'm trying to get at is, is and I'll use an example, probably trigger someone, but that just means it'll be fun. The Russia-Ukraine thing. I say just the thing because what is it now? There's so many things, right? So much stuff. We could pray against one side or the other. We could pray for a really specific outcome. But you know what? We don't fight against flesh and blood. There is something else going on. There is always something else going on. And so for us, when we think about what are we supposed to do, how are we supposed to pray, what are we supposed to engage in, Paul reminds us, you don't fight against flesh and blood, you fight against all these other things. We need to be those who remember that wherever Yahweh is, Yahweh is God. And we need to pray accordingly. His hands aren't tied. In fact, he doesn't have to ask permission Challenge comes to us. How are we going to treat Yahweh? You can pretend he's like Dagon, falls on the ground, hands fall off, head falls off, can't do much. No. Yahweh's powerful. The trick is, is that oftentimes when we pray that the Lord might do something big, do something important, do something massive, it often means we might have to do something. We might have to pray, give, maybe go. You see, because in Matthew 28, we are told, Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, so therefore, go make disciples, go and baptize, go and teach. That is it. Total disregard for Rome, other governments, Problems, issues, total disregard. He just says, go. You're supposed to go. Paul amplifies that to say, and when you go, you go and you do what you're supposed to do. Make disciples, baptize, teach. And having done all, what do you do? You stand. And you wait. Do everything. Do all those things, and then you wait. Why? Because our kingdom's coming. There's no Persians at the gate. It's Jesus. He's coming. The kingdom is coming. The order of this world 
is being overthrown. And we are called to go and to do and having done to stand. So that's what we should do. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have given examples in your word of faithful people like Daniel who at the end of an empire stands and relays a story so that a foolish, arrogant king can be reminded maybe, maybe he can turn, maybe he can repent. But the writing was on the wall. Thank you for Daniel. Thank you for his faithful service and thank you for his example. Lord, I pray that we we would be counted among those who know who Jesus is, know who Yahweh is. And that as we go, we make disciples, baptize, we teach, and we stand. We take our stand. Lord, I pray that as we take our stand, we'd remember those who suffer around us, we remember those who are oppressed, we remember those who are, Lord, captives and that you would use us to save them. Help us to not be enamored with politic and government and, judge and, and those types of things, because we know that you have judged all of them. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't look to someone else other than you to bring what's right into this world, and I pray you'd use us. Lord, I pray that someone in this room, Lord, I pray that most in this room, all of us in this room, would recalculate and reevaluate what you have called us to do that we might go and to do that thing. What have you called us to do to go and to make disciples? Lord, I pray that if there's issues with boldness, that we're timid, God, that those would melt away, that we'd pray for each other, God, that we would say the words that need to be said, God, not to give ourselves position, not to garnish for ourselves some sort of valor in someone else's eyes, but Lord, that we would be able to lift up your name, that we would make much of you in front of our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our enemies, whoever it is, that we would do all that you've called us to do. And when we have done it, Lord, that we would stand. I pray that we'd be counted among those who endure to the end, that we would be the overcomers, that we would be the conquerors. Lord, I pray that we would do it because we know who you are, and what you have called us to do, Lord, that we might stand before you, that you might call us good and faithful servant. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.